I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. Delighted to have here with us today Robin Stevens. She is the author of the best selling and award winning Murder Most Unladylike series of murder mysteries for children. Her newest book, The Ministry of Unladylike Activity, a World War II spy murder mystery, published in the UK and Ireland in September of this year. We are so excited to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Oh, it's such a thrill to have you here. Um, Robin, first, start off a little bit by telling us about your history with Agatha Christie. How did you come to her work? So um, my father um, was born in 1933, and so he grew up reading, um, like, Golden Age crime. Um, and as soon as I, he could reasonably do it, he started putting me on to um, work home. Mm-hmm. And then I got a little bit older, and he gave me Agatha Christie when I was 12. I think I was 11 and 12. Okay. Um, and, you know, that was the moment for me. It was the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Um, he gave it to me. Um, you know, I had been reading Ina Blyton and, and Nancy Drew and all those sort of the younger detective stories. Yeah. And I had loved them. Um, and, you know, he gave, he gave me a sort of saying, you think you're so clever, see if you can solve this mystery. <laughs> and of course, the murder of Roger Ackroyd, as you know, is one of like the most. It's twisty, shocking. Yes, um, Christie's, and of course they didn't get it. Um, but I was, I was just so hooked that day. Just you know, it, it kind of upended what I thought a, a mystery could be. You wow. know, things like what you're allowed to do. She sort of went further. Obviously, if you know that book. Yeah. Um, and and I just, I just was fascinated, fascinated by the puzzle and like the the world where everything, everybody seems basically nice in an Agatha Christie book. No, there, there's nothing telegraphed. Like, or right. if there is, it's a trick. Um, so you can't just work out who the, who the bad guy was. And, it, and it's so unlike the, the children's fiction I had been reading, the crime mm. fiction. 
and but also so much like real life you know that yes. that is that is what what life is like people seem nice and they're actually really not um and just the obsession started that day and i went through sort of every single act of christie i started reading other golden age crime uh novelists my dad would take me to um secondhand bookshops and we'd clean out <laughs> the Christie's they had um and and I started writing my own, you know, sort of murder mysteries, yeah. horrifying my series, sort of fourteen, fifteen, um, and just kept going. You know, I I um, wrote first draft of, of my first book, Murder Most Unladylike, when I was twenty two. Um, wow. You know, thinking back to my own school experience, I had gone to a boarding school, um, and yeah. I thought, you know, I, I want to sort of match up my own life experiences, my school, with a, a book that feels like actually feels comforting. Um, yeah. In the same way that, that her book comforted me as, as a teenager and as a young adult, and still do. Um, yeah. And and that was where my series started. Amazing. And when you say comforting, I, I find uh, Agatha Christie's and, and those kinds of murder mysteries to be the same. What do you think it is about them that are comforting? Um, I mean, it's a funny thing to say. And, and you know, when, when I say, right, murder mysteries for kids or murder mysteries, kind of in shock. Oh, no, murder um, for children. <laughs> but they are so comforting because they're such enclosed plots. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fundamentally a fantasy. They're, they're not real. It's not It's not like reading true crime. Right. I think it's a different vibe you get. You know, only one thing possibly can go wrong. You know, one person or a group of people are murdered. That's the only problem in the book. Yeah. Um, and you have this, this really safe, person at the center of, of the book the detective or the detective um and you know they know what they're doing and and often in, in golden age fiction they're not just sort of authority figures they're kind of almost sort of like holy they're they're yeah. sort of like godlike and yes. they're, sort of, they're sort of in the book and you know they're going to make everything fine and they always reveal who did it and they're always right yeah and and that person is taken away and, and sent off to prison everybody else is safe and it's such a such a comforting thing to think about a problem solved that quickly and a problem being so human sized and also you know mm. it, it is reduced to the puzzle it's not again you're not really getting into the nitty-gritty of like the gore and stuff yeah. that's not really what Christy is interested in mostly um I mean she's also a horror writer I think but but sort of mm, I when agree. Yeah. Death, you know <laughs> the death just happens and then it's a problem to be fixed it's a puzzle yeah so it's kind of the, the horror is taken out of out of you know murder yeah um, so it's it's just nothing to do nothing to do with real crime at all, and I think it's everything to do with sort of comfort and safety and and making the world better than mm. it than it was started book. Yeah, I agree with you, and I I also I find the settings of the books to be very integral to the comfort aspect. Yeah. Um, you know, like I was rereading um, Arsenic for Tea, one of your one of your books. And the minute they step into Falling Forward, which is this manor house, you have this incredible sense of comfort in just the the location. And you know that there's going to be a murder, obviously. But there is something about not just the enclosedness of the space, but the actual kind of visual of the space. Yeah. It has to be beautiful. I mean, it's like falling down beautiful is, is the day <laughs> house. But um, it has to be kind of a little aspirational, I think. Yeah. Somewhere that you kind of want to visit, you know, somewhere... It seems sort of yeah, cozy and and lovely or beautiful and interesting and mm-hmm. and you sort of you want to go live in that world and I, I I do think it's not it's not just the murder it is that that yeah you you want to be there you want to be to be with the detectives you want to be mm. in in that that universe for a while that's so true um, and going back a little bit to what you were talking about before about kind of the the idea of the age appropriate murder or murder yeah. for children. Um, you, 
How do you think, I mean, do you think Agatha Christie achieves that? And how is that something that you work towards in your books? Because they, they are for young adults. Yeah. So I think I think she does most of the time. And I think <laughs> okay. that there are moments when she doesn't. And yeah, actually, I totally what agree. What we're talking about today is yeah. when she, I think she fails. Hmm. Um, but but I think that, because I started reading them as a, as a very young adult, you know, 12, yeah. 13. Mm-hmm. And I think, for me, the... They were age appropriate in a weird way because they were all it was adults killing adults. And when yeah. you're when you're younger, you know, there's some sort of like you don't really believe that adults are real people. You know, they're around <laughs> you a lot, but but you you can't imagine what it's like to be an adult because you never have been. Um, whereas I think when you're looking back, um, you know, children see themselves as, as very sort of mature because they're the oldest they've ever been. But when you become an adult, you look back and think, oh my gosh, those children were so were so tiny. Yeah. You know, I now have a baby, and I think, you know my gosh, babies, they're, they're just like so vulnerable. And I, that wasn't what I had before, before this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, I found at Christie's very age appropriate because it was sort of this sort of, I couldn't imagine adult being an adult. Yeah. Um, and so when I write my books, um, my, my detectives are children, but all of the suspects um, and the victims generally need to be older than them. Yes. I mean, I have teenage um sort of suspects yes. um, in in the mix um, and, and actually victims as well. But because, again, my, my detectives are sort of 13, 14, 15, they're looking upwards right. and they're, they're seeing 18 and 19-year-olds as unimaginably right. grown up. Yeah, wow. mature. Yeah. When, when you're younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so so I think that there is something fundamentally a little bit unreal about how my 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 sort of main character Hazel, who's, who narrates my murder most and ladylike yes. series, um, she's very empathetic. She's a very sweet she girl, is. but you know she's a kid, and and so I think that I try to keep it lighter by making sure my my sort of victims, my suspects, are older than my detectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't like to um, to write about you know killing younger kids. Yeah. I think that would, that would sort of break the contract with my readers. I think especially because mm. I want. I want kids to read my books and feel empowered. Like they're the detectives; they're the ones in control. Yeah. They're they're working out who the murderer is. They're telling off the adults. They're sending adults to prison. You know, they're they're sort of realizing the truth. Yeah. Um, and if one of their number was was murdered, I think it would just sort of start feeling a bit too real. Yeah. And when I did, um, you know, I did in in one of my books, I had a, a baby be kidnapped. Um, and you know, and I was like, that's probably fine. And now having a baby, I could never write that. I yeah. Think. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, I think, you know, kids are very perspective, they're very smart, they're very thoughtful. But I think when you're younger, you do lack a certain sense of perspective. And I think that's what I use in in creating my books. Yeah. One of the ways I love that you do that in the books is that Hazel's like always hungry. Yeah. (laughs) And like murders are happening, she, but she's like, but couldn't we just stop and have something to eat first? Um, my big memories. I mean, I, I still love to eat, but I remember yeah. being a kid, hungry and being yeah. like, this is so important. I have to have food. You know, yeah. Big things are happening, but micro stuff. I need food. I need, yes, you know, totally. I need, um, and I think that's the kind of very immediacy of immediate nature of being a child that you um, you're always thinking about what's in front of you, not just because the the whole world. I, I, that's so true, and. You know, I, it was interesting what you're saying about kind of age appropriateness as well, because I also think like kids are different from each other, 
right? Like some kids are kind of weird. <laughs> and like I was, a, I was a weird kid who wanted to read about murder all the time. And I wanted scary books. And I think about films like The Nightmare Before Christmas. There are some kids who love that film and some kids who are really frightened by it. And they're really just as, a, just as in adults, there's a spectrum of what kids like. Um, And so, you know, murder mysteries for kids are for kids who like murder mysteries. You know what I mean? And I think we sometimes forget that element of, like, choice. There are just kids who like certain things, and uh, that's okay. Um, Yeah, exactly. And I I do get um, emails from kids who who say, you know, your your stories really scare me. You know, and I'm like, okay, if you do, leave it for a year. Don't don't feel like, or read it in a day, or, you know, don't push yourself. Um, But there are also a lot of weird little kids. Like, I was a weird little kid, you know. Um, I think it's nice that, you know, they now have something that is weird like them, but yeah. that is for them. And, you know, I think that was, I loved Agatha Christie's, but so inappropriate though, to reading them age 12. And I'm really glad yeah. that kids don't have to go straight to them. You know, mm. there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, is racist and sexist and, yeah. and, and quite, you know, upsetting for, for reasons that have nothing to do with the murders. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. and, and I think that, you know, that stuff that you do miss when you're a child, but it kind of goes into your head and, and that's not, that's not great. Um, but, but, you know, I think the other thing is that like, it is important to read about dark stuff and like adults, mm-hmm. we love horror, like, you know, kids and adults, we all love scary stuff because we like to push the bounds. We like to think about like, you know, nightmare scenarios, what would happen if, um, but we like to do it in a way that isn't, isn't real. Yeah. And then we can go into that world and think about, you know, sort of horrifying things and then step out and say, no, we're still safe. Yeah. Um, it's like play acting, it's playing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think allowing kids to do that and, and to play with sort of big, scary thoughts because, you know, kids know that murder happens. Like, we yeah. hear about it all the time. And adults try to hide it from kids and don't do it very well and don't, you know, lie to kids about stuff. And kids know when they're being lied to. And, and I think mm-hmm. books that don't sugarcoat stuff, I think, are really important. Do it yeah. safely, do it in a fun way, but are honest about kind of yeah. scary things that are in the world. Yeah, and I think it's a safe place to process Right. And, and I, I loved what you said about writing to your audience and that you kind of consider those kids like you are considering the kids your audience. I don't think Agatha Christie was doing that. I don't think she was really writing for children in particular. Um, and I in a way, I'm not sure she was writing for anybody but herself in the sense of she really liked to give herself a problem set and solve it. And I also think she really just liked to have the job of being a novelist and just like yeah. produce um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I, I'm not sure she felt the same way about, like, connecting with her audience that, yeah. that you're talking about. Which, which I, I think is a, a difference in terms of the generational, sure. you know. I now, like, she would have gotten letters from fans. But, mm-hmm. like, I now go on TikTok. I can go on Instagram. I can go on Twitter. And I can yeah. see, like, in my face, people being like, I like this. I hated this. You know, <laughs> right. I love this character. And so I know in real time, you know, how how sort of people are feeling about about stories and and mm-hmm. I get you know a lot of you know I, I I do meet and greets and I do signings and and people come up to me and say I want this I would love to hear who does this I I didn't like this um and so you know I I write for myself like I think <laughs> of course of to. course and and actually like Christy I love setting myself a problem and mm-hmm. each book that I start I am the problem is you know sort of how do I make this murder almost almost perfect but not quite you know how do I <laughs> up beautifully how does everybody be in the right place at the right time and yeah. it is it's a problem my brain to, to work on and yeah. I I feel lost when I'm not writing a book because I'm not you know sort of clicking into place all those yeah. different little moving parts um 
but you know, I, I do think about my fans and I think about what they want. And I think that's probably a good request. I keep hearing that, like, what a nice idea. And, um, and I think it helps me write books that are more, you know, more diverse, more like real life, because, mm. you know, when you're, you're on your own in a room, you forget kind of what the rest of humanity is like. And when you have these people saying, I would love to see this, I am like this, this mm-hmm. is, you know, this is important to me. I think it, it sort of reminds you all the different people there are in the world. I think it's really helpful. Yeah. And I also, I mean, just from my reading about kind of who Agatha Christie was, and I, I haven't read everything that's out there about her, but I've read a fair bit. Um, she didn't like public speaking. She didn't really like being the center of attention. Um, I think she was the president of, was it like the detective society, whatever, but like only on the basis that she never had to give a speech. Um, You know, so I sometimes even wonder if she was writing today, what kind of interaction she would really be engaging with, Um, even with social media. I can imagine her just being like, this isn't for me. I just want to write. And then it sends out into the ether and then I never have to think about it again. The dream. I mean, you can't yeah, do it. Right <laughs> I mean, it's not really. I, I, I love. I, I really love meeting fans, and yeah. I think, you know, I think a lot of we're authors because we're shy and, and weird and want to be alone <laughs> in the room. But, yeah. um, I have, you know, being a children's author, there is a certain performance that comes with that because you have to be able to go into schools. Like you're, mm. you're publishing, go and talk to, you know, two hundred children. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's practice, and it's it's work and it's, it's sort of a, a scary part of the job, but it's something mm. that like you know, nine years in and I'm starting to really enjoy it and finding it sort of um, rewarding. And I love, I just love meeting fans and talking to them mm. about like why they love the book because, you know, often it is this feeling of like meeting yourself, you yeah. know, like seeing all these, all these kids I'm like, Oh, you were me, you know, like, yeah. that's how I felt. like that's how much I love books, how much I love series, yeah. which I care about characters. And it's, so it's, you know, it's it's like having a conversation with like your past self, or seeing sort of yeah. kids who are going to be the next generation of authors or and readers, and that's just it's amazing. And I think it's it, it can feel like a stressful part of being a children's author, but I think it's a unique privilege. And I think mm. that I I feel very lucky to be in a time when I can have that sort of connection, um, dialogue with fans. Yeah. It's great. I love that. That's um. That's really beautiful. And I love the idea of like getting to talk to your past self about books, because that's all I wanted to talk about as a kid. But a lot of it was like people were like, I don't want to talk about murder with you anymore. Like, I can't, <laughs> I can't talk about more murders. Um, I'm, I'm curious about you were saying that the, a lot of your fans connect to um, your characters in particular. And you've written the same characters, obviously, over and over again throughout your books, which is obviously something that Christy did as well. Um, how do you find that having the same characters throughout the books allows you to develop them? Or do you did they kind of come to you complete and you're just allowing them to exist throughout the books? Um, I mean, so the idea, so I initially wrote Murder Most Unladylike as a standalone. And, I, you know, I wrote it like I was working in a bookstore, I was working in Blackwell in Oxford, and I wrote it on my lunch break, you know, mm-hmm. um, over a number of months. And, and it was just totally my, out of my head, you know, I wonder about me and my friends. And so Daisy and Hazel are very much based on, on my, my friends at school. Also, to be honest, based on, um, Hazel is based on Poirot and, and mm-hmm. Daisy is based on Sherlock Holmes. So my, my right. two, two favorites. Yes. Um, but when I finally found an agent for it after sort of several years of, of editing, querying, you know, I'm, I'm conflating all this, but, yeah. um, she said, could this be a series? Could it be like Earth of Because, you know, she also was a big Christie lover, which is why we connected and she was right. her agent for me. Um, 
And like, you know, immediately I was like, of course, like, because the, the thing you love about, about Agatha Christie's often is it's the same detective. It's, it's yes. the character that you adore and you know, they can just be dropped into a, into a location with new people and you don't need to explain who they are. You just know, well, this is Clara, this is Miss Marple. Mm-hmm. These are their foibles and traits and, and, and it's like seeing friends again. And, um, and it's a little different because Daisy and Hazel are, are teenagers. And when you're a teenager, you're going through like an immense period of change. And like Miss Marple and Poirot do sort of change, but they're also this kind of timeless, they're timeless in a way. They yeah. start off being old. They're already anachronistic in the world they're being written about. They're not yeah. really part of it. And kind of Victorians in, in sort of, you know, 20th century life. Yeah. Um, but, but Daisy and Hazel do change a lot in each book. Um, and they're growing up. And, you know, when you are 13, 14, 15, you're always changing how you see the world is changing, how you connect to your friends, you know, yeah. your romantic interests and stuff. It's all changing all the time. And I find that really interesting to write about. And I, I really didn't want to write a famous five where they, they're static and they don't they don't age. I wanted to age them up. Okay. Um, and certainly as I was writing, like they're always the same people and it, it feels like meeting friends every time. Um, but as I was writing, more of the character came out to me, you know, it I mean, literally came out. <laughs> in what case, but, um, uh, you know, I got to watch them grow up and I got to see sort of how their characters were, were sort of like slightly altering through time. Mm-hmm. And I'm now writing um, The Ministry of Unladylike Activity, which is the follow-on series. Mm-hmm. And there in the background is 19-year-olds. And it's like, oh, there they are again, you know, my yeah. friends. And they have changed a huge amount. But like, they are, of course, the, the characters I invented way back in, in 2010 and so it just feels like we're privileged to kind of keep seeing them um yeah in the world that's I really connect to that because I mean not to like get too personal but I also wrote a book recently and I envisioned it as a series um but I had no plans to kind of keep writing after I had finished this first book at least just for a while and then just a couple weeks after I finished I found myself like needing to visit that character again I had to I had to see what she was up to and it was such a feeling of yeah seeing an old friend like I had to write about her and and give her more of a story so I that's so fascinating and I love that you've even kind of made kind of this you know next step series so that they're they're growing up but they're still there there and it's it's my sort of comfort I think I wasn't new but I I couldn't I couldn't totally step away from my my detectives. I I think yeah. so. There's something, you know, we love Christy because of of the plot and mm-hmm. the technicality and how how just smart and concise she is. Yeah. But we love those characters, and I think there's something about a character that transcends. Like if you get a good character, a character who who readers are going to want to keep reading about, like yeah. that's the magic ingredient. I think yeah. if there wasn't Laura Miss Marple, it was just clever mysteries. We don't know that we'd still be reading her. Yeah, know? I agree. And, I, and I, I think that's actually borne out in the books that people still read and adapt yeah. uh, within her canon. I mean, she, you know, I, I don't go back to Man in the Brown Suit and Secret of Chimneys and, you know, the, the kind of standalone mm-hmm. um, mysteries. I go back to the Poirots and the Marples because yeah. that, that's where the comfort is, but also that's where... Yeah, that's where my friends are. <laughs> that's exactly. where my friends are. I couldn't, I still have never read, I've never read um, The Last Poirot, Where He Dies. <gasps> I can't do it. You can't? I can't. can't. I can't. I have read The Last of Marvel because she doesn't die. It's yes. just, you know, it's just the last one. Yeah. I think that's actually one of, one of my favorites. But um, I love that I one too. I can't say goodbye to him. I just, 
Um, and it, it started off, you know, as a teenager, I just couldn't do it. That's so funny. I Because I love Curtain. I actually think it's it's such a brilliant book. So I totally understand where you're coming from, but it's one of my favorite Poirots, actually. Um, so maybe one day you'll, you'll embark. Day. I might be old enough to do it, but yeah. <laughs> not before. So we're going to talk a little bit now about the the reason for the podcast, which is the Christie book we're going to talk about. We're, you know, part book club over here. So we're talking about Halloween Party. Um, and I'm just going to give a little background on the book. Halloween Party was published in 1969, which is right after By the Pricking of My Thumbs, a Tommy and Tuppence novel, which, boo, none of us like Tommy and Tuppence, uh, and right before A Passenger to Frankfurt. Um, it is the sixth book to feature the novelist Ariadne Oliver, and it was not really that well received, to be honest. Um, it is one of the only Christie books in which children are murdered as the central victims, which is something I know we're going to talk about. Um, do you want to give like a really brief synopsis of Halloween Party? Yeah, so I have I've written <laughs> <laughs> I've written a Halloween Party in sixty seconds. Perfect. Uh, we'll start off with no spoilers. So, um, Ariadne Oliver comes down to Woodley Common to visit her friend Judith Butler, hilariously named. No relation. I know, to so funny. <laughs> um, they go to a children's Halloween party for slightly serious reasons um, at local community leader Rowena Drake's house. And during the party, a girl called uh, Joyce Reynolds tells Mrs. Oliver that she has seen a murder. Uh, no one believes Joyce until Joyce turns up drowned in the apple bobbing tub at the end of the party. Mrs. Oliver calls Clara, and they go on the trail of Joyce's killer by hunting down the cold case that Joyce apparently saw. Uh, things go very murderous easy as they look at all the apparent accidental deaths in the town again to work out which one or ones of them were really murdered. Uh, meanwhile, Poirot is drawn to the attractive and charismatic gardener Michael Garfield, who seems to have connections to a number of mysterious deaths in the area. And Michael seems to be drawn to Judith Butler's daughter Miranda, who just so happens to have been Joyce's best friend. Mm -hmm. And then it gets very confusing from there. <laughs> yes, it does. That was very concise. Thank you. Um, so, yes, the, the, as you say, Joyce Reynolds is, is murdered, um, and she is a 13-year-old girl. Um, mm -hmm. And there are not many Christie murders in which a child is murdered as kind of the central characters. And some of the Marples, they talk about, like, a child who was killed a while ago, um, but he's not really central to the, the any of the plots. Um, and this one features not only one with Joyce Reynolds, but two with her brother. Uh, even so younger. Even he's younger. More. He's 10. And yeah. this poor mother, Mrs. Reynolds, has lost now two children. Um, do you think that Christie manages to kind of keep this book as light as her others? despite these two murders? I I don't for a number of reasons, but the murders do not help. Like yeah. I, I I think that she tries to bring like she has she's quite cold about, about murder victims often. Yeah. You know, sort of like well she wasn't a very nice woman. She wasn't a very like he wasn't a very nice man. Yeah. And that works with adults, but when you were writing about a thirteen year old and a, a 10, 11 year old, it does not work. Mm -hmm. Um and I think especially you know, it's just the, the coldness of her, like Joyce, when they're going around asking like her teacher and her brother and sister, what, you know, what was she like? And, and they're like, oh, she was pretty rubbish. You know, yeah, she, she was, was a liar. Ugly and she was a liar. And yeah. Her heart is mediocre child, as, as her teacher calls her, her headmistress. And your heart is breaking, you know, for this yeah. like child. Yeah. And I think there's such a gap between how everybody sees Joyce and how, like, of course, I mean, she sounds like an annoying child, but like... <laughs> No, she is thirteen years old, yeah. and and what if you've ever met a thirteen year old, you know what that is, yeah. and and so I think it just doesn't succeed because 
kind of hard to believe that a 13-year-old could really be that kind of uninspiring, I yeah. think. And, <laughs> and I think also, you know, there is, there is a lot of class stuff going on yeah. as well. And Christy is not, not as good when writing about, like, people that she's seeing as the lower classes. Yes. You know, she, she sort of struggles to understand the humanity of people who don't make a lot of money or have you know mm-hmm. a lot of money in the in the family coffers mm-hmm. um and sort of often turns them into kind of the, the caricature stereotypes yeah. and i think that's especially what mrs reynolds is in this yeah like a mother like an unmotherly mother who sort of is quite kind of almost animal-like about it. she's like, well i've lost a child and then you know loses another child off screen but I don't think her humanity is thought about. And the thought of a mother like losing a, a kid is so horrible. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps losing a second, you know, again, it's just awful, yeah. you know? And so, so I think that, I think that neither of these victims, you know, it, what Christy is saying on the page and what you think as a reader, I think are quite different. And it's quite, I, I find it, I find it upsetting, more upsetting the older I get. I yeah. think that the older I get, I get away from a 13 year old and I think, oh my gosh, you know what that really is. Yeah. Um, but then there's just a lot I think about about children. I think Chrissy has a lot of um, probably issues with children. I don't. Yep. <laughs> and, and I think she has that in, in a lot of books. And yep. you know, sometimes seeing them as kind of these sort of proto adults that sort of don't don't really exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but but actually, it reminds me a bit um, the way that Joyce is is written about um, being sort of quite lumpy and and obviously that that means like you know sort of stupid and means sort of uninspiring but but it also means sort of sexy which Chris actually says at one point that yeah. she's like lumpy in and like she means like curvy right um and I think it reminds me of the um the body in the library yeah. where the idea of a, of a of a child who looks like an adult looks older than she is yeah. and looks sort of obviously quote mark sexy because I is a child yeah. um she, that is you know is victimized as well yeah and um, so there's I don't know something something about sort of child innocence versus sort of teenage sexuality and Chrissy being very uncomfortable with that. I think mm. um, we also have Miranda yes. who's, who's twelve, I think, twelve, thirteen, yeah. and she is like you know slender and sylph-like and very childlike still, as opposed to like Joyce, who's kind of curvy and therefore able to be victimized and. Right. There's a whole thing going on again. I think I think that it felt it feels to me this was a book where Christy isn't quite in control of how she's seeing people, how she's writing about people, mm. and some of her her prejudices against I think against younger people are really coming out. The ones like having just I've also just read Passenger to Frankfurt and it is mm. bananas. Like it <laughs> is out of control. You know that the fear she has about young people, yeah, um, is just worrying. Yeah. And I think it is here as well. The the idea that like young people are just dangerous and sexy and worrying and she sort of wants to get rid of them and do away with them yeah yeah and I think there's a lot of anxiety as especially as we get into her later books from like the 60s onwards about being like older and irrelevant and Mm -hmm. like what young people kind of are and what they represent and um often like their dirtiness and their like their clothes yeah, they're their great. They have greasy hair and, uh, you know, clothes, yeah, and they have jumpers anymore. that have holes in them and all kinds of things. So I, I think you're completely right. Yeah. Um, 
It was interesting because I was I was talking with John Curran recently, who um, wrote the Secret Notebooks mm-hmm. of Christie, and he's a like a you know obviously the kind of renowned academic on on Christie's work and life, um, and he was saying that it's he doesn't recommend reading into her work, like her opinion into her work, because mm-hmm. her work is so plot driven that it becomes dangerous if you read her personal feelings into her work. And I, I disagree with that take. Yeah. W- where do you stand on that? I I mean, I think, so I, I do think that she is better at times at hiding what she thinks. Mm. And I think that there's a really interesting stuff with Ariadne Oliver yes. in this one, where she talks about um, how she has to hide herself. Mm-hmm. She hides herself behind like quirk. So mm-hmm. she's got that eating apple quirk, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's not a personality trait. That's the thing she does. Yeah. But it's become the only thing that people know about her. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is what, you know, I think that some of Ariane Oliver, I think, is not Christy. And again, it's her hiding behind something. But I yes. think that's a little bit of a, a moment of like, this is what I do. I, I have traits. I have quirks. I am mm-hmm. this quirky, weird author who drinks like a pint of cream. You know, I'm, <laughs> you can't see the real me because. I'm hiding behind all of these kind of yeah. little suspicions. Um, but being an author myself, there is, I, I mean, I know a lot of, even a lot of authors who say, well, you know, this isn't reflective of what I think. But I, yeah. I really struggle. I think I'm an author who writes very personally. And I really struggle with the idea that you could write and not write yourself and not write out something that's in your head, mm-hmm. you know, even mm-hmm. if you don't know you're doing it. And I often, when I'm writing a new book, I'll, I'll be like, I'm just making up this this really random plot that, you know, <laughs> could come from anywhere. I don't know why this has come into my head. I don't know where these people have come from. And I write it. And then I look back and I think, oh, my gosh, you know, that was, I, was, I could not have written anything else. I was writing about, you know, exactly me and exactly yeah. the, the point I was at, like in, in the Ministry of Unladylike Activity. You know, I started writing it during during the pandemic, kind of in 2021. Um you know, we were still very sort of, you know, off in our own little houses, you know, mm-hmm. so not um, restrictions of kind of just ending. And it's it's a story set in a in a country house where, you know, they're everyone's hiding from the world trying to trying to sort of feel safe by kind of not engaging with World War Two going on around them. But mm-hmm. you know, it comes in, but you know, they're trying to be isolated and it still comes in. And of mm-hmm. course that that's the pandemic. And, you know, and one of my characters, um, Finula, uh, has She's half American and half, half um, uh, sorry, half English and half Irish, and mm-hmm. she's grown up in America. Um, and I am, of course, English and American, and my, my partner is Irish. Um, and uh, her father has died a year before the, the event of the book. Yeah. And I was like, this is, you know, just a random thing that happened. Of course, my father died when I started writing wow. the book. He just died. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I look back on like, well, all the emotion she's having about his death and how she did, how, how isolated and sad and lonely she feels, that was me. Right. And, you know, that's, that's a sort of very obvious example, but, mm-hmm. but I do tend to, to go back and look at old books and I think, well, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was wanting to say. And of course, it's not every character in the book reflects me, but you do put yourself in a book. And yeah. I think the, you can hide it. You can hide it really well. And I mm-hmm. think I did at the beginning but I do think that in this book and in her later books and I think you really can feel what she feels and I, yeah. I think it's so out of place like you know, it's so just sort of irrelevant there keep being all of these moments when and I think she is trying to use it as misdirection all these moments people are saying talking about sex crimes and talking about um you know sort of like 
mentally unstable people who should be in who should be in sort of um you know the the language is obviously so outdated that yeah. I sort of use it without without sort of being offensive. But you know, horrible things about people yeah. with mental illness. Is saying you know they shouldn't be in the community; they should be locked up. And, right. um, and you know that must be disturbed money crime. And it, it of course the the solution is it sort of is that, but but there's something much more sort of old fashioned going on as well. But there's all this window dressing about sort of how dangerous modern society is. Um, and how scared people, the older characters are by it, scared by younger people, scared by the, their sexuality, and scared mm-hmm. by sort of their um, their potential for for being dangerous. And I do think that that that's just pure out of her brain fear. And, and mm-hmm. something I felt really interesting when I read um, uh, Passenger to Frankfurt. There's a lot of stuff about sort of the the, the handsome man who's is a cult leader who's like who's getting people to follow him and, and being very charismatic and, and sort of sexy and kind of very very dangerous and yeah. and Michael in this is is that as well and I realized that they both are written right after the Manson murders and the mm-hmm. idea of that charismatic cult leader you know and just the fear of what young people will do when they're left alone they're being mm-hmm. sexy in the desert and then they go and kill everyone you know right. and, and just you know, there are cases like several cases like that around the late sixties and you know, she's seeing all that stuff in the news and feeling like the the world is collapsing. You know, right. I don't know this world anymore. I don't have a handle on how people behave anymore. Yeah. And there's that fear of being irrelevant, the fear of not being able to connect with people's psychology anymore, I think is really coming through in, mm. in this question. Yeah, you can tell, I think, yeah. that she's not in a happy place. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I just, I agree with you. I don't think there's a way to write a book because every choice you make as a writer comes from yourself. And and I'm not of the opinion that everything a character says is you saying it as a writer. I think that's nonsense. And I really, I think people need to be able to separate a, a character's development from like the feelings of the author. Um, but kind of the creation of the world itself is from the mind of the author. So there, yeah. there's no way to not put yourself in it in some yeah. element. Um, yeah. And for me, there's one passage in this book that I find so, like, out of place. But also, I, I just, every time I read it, I think, like, Agatha Christie just, like, went nuts with this paragraph. It's it's when she's talking about the, the quarry garden. Yeah. And it's like five pages long. I don't even know how long it is. It's so long. And she just talks endlessly about what this garden looks like. Mm-hmm. And obviously she talks a lot about gardening in the in um, the Marple books. And that's kind of a character trait of Miss Marple. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally she'll bring in gardening to Poirot's where, you know, it's often like a woman who loves to garden in her manor house or, you know, his, his whole marrow gardening thing at it's the very beginning. Um, but she obviously kind of has a thing about gardening but that just that particular passage I was like really struck anew when I was rereading it of how out of place it was within the book um I don't know if you experienced that as well I mean it's just there's so much about gardens and I think <laughs> I, I truly truly don't care about gardening and so I was like <laughs> amazing as I'm reading like and it is interesting it's just it is such a it, the, the the structure of the book is so odd, but it's yeah. so circular. I mean, almost kind of like that Cory Garden, which is kind of, you know, it's like a bullshit. It mm-hmm. keeps, you know, they just keep going to meet different people and being like, what about this murder? Tell me about this murder. Yeah. Was, was this murder? And, you know, and it's just, it's an endless chapters of that. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's always almost, it's almost early to get to the garden bit and Michael. And kind of, and, <laughs> yeah, it's quite nice. You know, it's like quite gentle. It yeah. But, 
but it is. I mean, obviously, like sim- symbolically, it's it's kind of a Zenic garden thing, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of danger serpent in the garden sort of stuff. And and it, I think it's really interesting that every time Poro, you know, there is all that stuff about sort of new age fears that she has, but then the actual like Michael and Miranda and and the whole gardening thing and the way Poro sees him, it's so old fashioned, like he. Mm. He's like he's like medieval poetry, kind of medieval pageantry, and kind of almost medieval romance. And he sees—I yeah. I find the way he sees Michael really interesting mm. because it is this courtly love kind of thing going on. That he's sort of he's seeing this this gorgeous man and thinking like, I don't like how beautiful he is. It makes know. me angry. And and I find again, I find that really interesting because Poirot is so he will he will often look at women and say. You know she is beautiful in this in this very sexless way. He's like I can I can acknowledge and see her beauty, right. but you almost never get a man being mm-hmm. like in parts like he's gorgeous. Look how beautiful he is. Mm-hmm. Be upset. Um, and I I don't know I I I just I just not quite with it in in the books because in the book or I guess in relation to Poirot because it is is such an odyssey. Um, but I but I do think there is something going on in her later books about the, the fear of, of beautiful men and, mm. and that they might be cult leaders and cement revolution. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's um, there, there's a lot within kind of that's with Michael Garfield, but also with Judith and with her daughter mm. about kind of um, there's almost something like Greek mythology about it. There's very like the, even kind of the, the attempted killing towards the end, there's yeah. like a ritualistic aspect to it yeah. um, or a pretend ritualistic aspect. Um, yeah, there's definitely kind of this uh, more, as you say, new agey murder element, which isn't really present in in her no. earlier books. No. Um, but no, it is, and it's all the actual, the actual murder plot. It's so, yeah, like Neolithic and, and, right. and talking about kind of naiads and, and dryads yeah. and woodmen. Undine. And of course, and, Miranda yeah. is Undine and Miranda is Shakespeare. Yeah. And, you know, um, so it, I guess, you know, in a way, if, you know, thinking about it, you know, she's confronted by this new world that she can't really understand. And, and it, she's diving back to something that she feels safe. She's making herself safe. She's being comfortable mm-hmm. by going you know, it's, it's archaeology, it's what, you know, she and her husband love, it's gardening, and, and yeah. kind of, it's going back to, to history. Yeah. Um, you know, so sort of like, underneath all of that new age stuff, it's, it's, it's what she's comfortable with is yeah. very old murder and historical murder. And, yeah. um, you know, she is somebody who really likes, in her book, to, she loves, she loves cold cases, she loves historical murders, things to sort of reach back to, reaching back into the past, and she uses a lot of, um, real historical like victorian and, and early that's right yeah crimes in her book to, to inspire her um inspire her stories and um you know the the whole idea of the the orwell declining english murder you know looking back and saying like there was a time when english murder was nice and that you know she does that you know she's, right. she's liking she's thinking back victorian words you know, like this was a real good one you know i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna use this i'm gonna be yeah. comforted by this yeah, and and what's so interesting about that is, at least for me, this book starts out in a place where I'm like, I'm in, you know, like yeah. we're at a party, we're at an English house, we're like the novel Ariadne Oliver is here. Mm-hmm. There's kind of there's a fami- familiarity to the beginning of the book where I thought we're just in for another Christie. Great. It, it is weird because yeah, because that 
party with like 30 people. Okay, that's too many. I mean, there are too many characters. Like, in the book, so many I, people. My goodness. Um, but yeah, it starts so well. And then everyone disperses. And mm-hmm. you're like, but hold on. You need to keep them there. Yeah. And and of course, the murderer is one of the people at that party. But yeah. it almost doesn't matter because that is not the set piece. You hear about it like, oh, you know, you sort of hear about it. You don't hear about it. You do have like a moment where the, where the murderer kind of reveals himself. But the, the big set piece is, of course, is Michael and Miranda. And that's what the, the sort of novel hinges on. And that's what we were trying to get to. Right. And so, yeah, it's it's this very weird thing where she has, like, two different plots, and the uninteresting plot is the one that she's, like, going after, and the one that, like, I want to know who kills Joyce. And, and, and like, you know, again, I think that's where the uncomfortable nature of, of killing a 13-year-old, that hmm. most of the time in a murder mystery, when somebody dies, like, their murder matters, you know? Yeah. You, you are, the point of the book is to work out who did it, and they can be an unpleasant person, they can be, you know, a really uh, boring or, you know, but but because of the book, the shape of the book, they become crucial to it. And at the end of the story, you know, their murder is, is revealed and it, it was all for something. Right. Joyce becomes this sort of subplot becomes like, oh, it should have been, you know, it really isn't about her. And that is yeah. so sad. It is that, sad. You know, she, she died literally for nothing in, and then normally in a, in a murder mystery, she would have been the star of the show. And yeah. like, that's all she would have wanted, poor Joyce. Like, she just wanted to be interesting and she doesn't get that. No, she died because she was a liar. And, yeah. and that's not, you know, really, with even within Christie's world, really a good enough reason. Yeah. Um, because in, the, in her books, everybody lies. Yeah. Um, and what I will say, what I find a little bit heartbreaking, too, is that um, Miranda is really the only person that seems to miss Joyce. Yeah. And that was her best friend. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, Christy doesn't go too much into their relationship, but there are these little kind of moments where um, really the only person who seems to express too much sadness is yeah. is her friend. I know. But, but Miranda's a weird, she's a weird character. She's very, she's, like, out to lunch. Like, she's just sort of... But, but, but I think that she is the way that Christy often writes children, which is yeah. very, like, consciously naive. Mm-hmm. And it's like... You know, she says all this weird stuff. I'm like, you're not a 12-year-old. You know, yeah. she's, she's not processing in in the way that you would expect a sort of smart, engaged 12-year-old to be processing. Yeah. And and I think I do think for her character, it, it really is just, she's again a caricature. She's like this perfect, like, dainty child whose sort mm-hmm. of innocence is, is kind of the thing that the novel is kind of fighting, is like wrangling over. Yeah, it's like if um, the word ethereal could be a person, yeah. it would be Miranda. And, yeah, yeah, no, annoying. I mean, you know, it, to me, she's almost annoying. And like Joyce, I'm like she's she's a, she's a person. You know, yeah. she's the kind of kid that we all were, like trying one to be more interesting than we are, and <laughs> wanting to like to listen to us. And yeah, you know, but and, and then I think is you know the Chrissy doesn't see that. It's so yeah, it's so sad. I mean, not to put you on the spot, but do you think this book is good? I this not you know. I think that's a really hard question. <laughs> I know it is. I, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. I think that it's a really rich text. And I mm. think I've read it a lot of times. Yeah. And I find it so bizarre. I think part for reasons that Christy does not mean. Yeah. I think there are some moments in it that are, are gorgeous and like are really arresting and that mm-hmm. I think about a lot. And, you know, I, I have a Halloween party style thing in, in um, miniature and laid like activity. And yeah. I, and I drew a Halloween party. I wanted a, um, for various reasons, the timing of my novel meant that I couldn't have it at Halloween. I had to have it like a week later. Mm-hmm. 
I totally already I, I put into ministry yeah. apart from I'd already used Snapdragon in a in a previous short story. So I like I am fascinated by that party mm. and, and and I guess partly because Joyce's death is so upsetting to me and unfinished and un undealt with that yeah. I sort of want to keep thinking about it. But it is not Christy at her best and and I one of the things I think is really interesting is that that the the third Poirot movie is going to be based on Halloween Party. And yes. I, I really don't understand how this is going to happen because it takes place in Venice. Yeah. But but to me, it just isn't it isn't the one I choose. I don't think it's it's not a very cohesive novel. Mm-hmm. I mean I guess in a way it has so much potential and then it goes so far left yeah. that maybe they're like, we'll take that party and do something else with it. Yeah. But it isn't it isn't one that I that I would feel really showcases Poirot or showcases Christie mm. very well. Um, but obviously, I chose it to write to talk about. So you know, yeah. there there's something to it that that bothers me and that I think about a lot and that mm. I'm I'm drawn to and fascinated by. Yeah. Um, so it's not like I mean, Passenger Passenger Frankfurt is genuinely a bad novel, and I read that. <laughs> yeah. This is actually bad, and and I don't feel like that about most Christie's but that really hit me this time I was like this is, this is, this is nonsense yeah. but this I think is something else is going on but what? yeah yeah I, I agree with you I don't I reread this book I re like of the kind of you know 66 books there's probably whatever 20 that I reread regularly this is one of them I come back to this book um, I, I feel frustrated by this book um, there are passages that I really love in this book, so I completely agree with you. It's a um, yeah, it's it's quite rich in what you yeah. can, especially and that, yeah, yeah, rich in a way that Chrissy didn't mean. And I think that yeah. is interesting as an author because mm-hmm. I love books where you can't you can't see the gap between what the author was trying to tell you and or you can between what the author was trying to tell you and what the author tells you. Mm-hmm. And I think it reveals. Like Dracula is one. I am I am obsessed with that book because I think it reveals a lot more about Bram Stoker than Bram Stoker thought it was revealing when he wrote it. Like right. I think it's a really rich text. I mean, it's a great story, but it's a really rich text. And yeah. I think this is the same that mm. you can see bits of Christie that perhaps yeah. she didn't want to. Do. And and I think that's particularly fascinating when you look at her work overall because she's usually so tight with yeah. with that. Um, yeah. So I think there are very few books where you get that experience with Christy. Yeah. Um, and um, I also feel that way about Five Little Pigs. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, I love Five Little Pigs. I go back to that book yeah. a lot. I think it's one of her best as a novel, um, not just as a mystery, but as a novel. But I also think it's it has a lot of her in it by accident, yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly about the mother-child relationship. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that but, moment of yeah. murder when they describe the murder that I, I find that haunting, and I, 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 I that is definitely one I think about a lot. That that mm-hmm. scene, yeah. So, and yeah. actually, I was thinking about it because when I was rereading *Arsenic for Tea*, one of your books, um, there's in the tea when when um, Dennis takes the takes his tea and he drinks it back in one draft, and he says it tastes foul. Yeah. That's the you know that's the moment. Um, it is. Uh, for Amias Crail in in Five Little Pigs, yeah. where he drinks his beer and yeah. he says it tastes foul. Um, yeah. So like just that motion of yeah. taking it back in one draft, I was yeah. like, ooh, that's such a great thing to to draw in. 
I mean, I have been rereading and rereading and rereading this book since I was like 12. And I think it, it does come out, you know, I, yeah. I kind of, there's a lot about Christie's that, that I find really difficult. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think she's a, such a problematic fave, you know, yeah, I, I, I love her, but I, I, I sort of fight against her at the same time, mm-hmm. but you can't ever get free of her. I think as a, as a murder mystery author, yeah. as somebody writing this tradition, you can't escape Agatha Christie yeah. and you have to reckon with her and, and think about her mm-hmm. and, and sort of worry about her, I guess, yeah. you know, and, and she turns up in all my books, you know, she's always there. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, cause you said you, one of the stories in, uh, was based on Halloween or not based on Halloween party, but had elements of that. Can you talk a bit about it? So, so my, my new book is, is Ministry of Unladylike Activity. It's, right. it's set in World War II. It's the, it's the spy murder mystery. Um, so it's a little bit of Tommy and Tuppence in their, in their prime. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um, I, I did just read NRM as well, which that's another one with really troubling child, um, child character. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so each of, each of my books, I am always thinking about at least one, one Christian ministry was sort of N, N or M. And and Halloween party, you know the, the the murder is set up. They they have a party. They play all those party games. They play the sort of see your future husband and and cutting the um the flower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the um one of the sort of it's, it's a family who who lives in um in this place, Lusting Hall, yeah. away from the rest of the world. Um, and they have some evacuees who are who are my, my main characters, my detectives. Um, and the, one of the family says, let's play um murder in the dark um you know the, the game where you turn off all the lights and and you go around trying to um the killer tries to, to, to murder in quotes everyone and and everyone else tries to work who that person is for their skills in quotes um and of course it goes wrong um you know all the lights go out naturally and, you know, naturally <laughs> yeah. somebody is murdered um and and i certainly was thinking about you cannot think of Halloween party you know a, a game that goes wrong you know so that's sort of a classic sort of creepy moment and and i think again that that is agatha christie's real genius again to bring in this horror moment like the idea of being like murdered in in a bo- apple bobbing tub is so such horror it's yeah. such a brilliant moment yeah um and you know sort of trying to do something that something spooky that then turns into, into horror was kind of what i was thinking with with ministry but then of course there's there's a spy to uncover as well as the murder bring in NRM, you know, which which one of these nice normal people is actually a, a spy for the Germans because it's a World War II book. Wow. Um, yeah, our secret tea um, was, you know, sort of every single yeah. <laughs> country house in the history of Agatha Christie. Yeah. Um, I have my own um, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. It's called First Class Murder and mm-hmm. it's on the Orient Express. Yep. Um, and my own Death um, Death on the Nile, A Death That Sail. So I am always, you know, <laughs> Re reimagining Christie, yeah. rethinking about her book. But you can absolutely read your work without knowing Christie and without oh, yeah. having that no, background. Completely. Yeah. And and the really fun thing is, you know, kids kids are eight, nine, ten year olds reading yeah. them and thank goodness they have not read the Agatha Christie. <laughs> yeah, probably not. So they, they read my book and then, you know, years later they pick up Agatha Christie and they're like, Oh Yeah. <laughs> this is what she was writing about. And of course, like my books have totally different endings. There yeah. are no you know, I do take kind of plot inspiration sometimes, but I would never, I would mix, I mix it up so much that yeah. I think you have to be really on the ball to. Yeah, the twists, the twists are totally it. different. It's more about yeah, they, setting. Yeah. It's, it's settings. It's, it's the, the feeling that mm-hmm. you get. I think, yes. Is that what I want 
my books to feel like Agatha Christie, that, that comfort, the the glamour, the the sort of weird cast of characters who all mm-hmm. have something to hide. So that is is sort of the vibe yeah. that I'm, I'm I'm trying to give. They absolutely do, and and I'd say the thing that they also add is um, the element of empathy, <laughs> because particularly yeah. Hazel um, feels really sad about the victims of the murders yeah. and. Um, and like you know, her her co-par was always saying like I don't approve of murder. It's kind of this like yeah. more highfalutin cons- conceptual mm-hmm. take. And um and I love how empathetic Hazel is. Yeah. Um and and I it's how a child would feel in yeah. that situation. So I really um I love that aspect of of all of the books. Yeah, and I think with with Hazel, you know, I I was you know I again I like I love Agatha Christie, but. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's half American, all the Americans in Agatha Christie's books are called like Mrs. Ben Schnoldings, and then they're in it. And and you know she has such contempt for for Americans. She really and, does. And, you know, she made me see. She has so much contempt for everybody who's not in the same class, the same race, the same sort of you know social standing, the same mm. just anything that, that she is. And you know you notice that more and more, and it is so. It is othering, and I think that yeah. there is a pretty sort of dark heart to Agatha Christie's books. You know that it, they are unpleasant worlds, but but I think that's hard. And I I wanted when I wrote my books to sort of have a world that feels a bit more inclusive. It feels like you know a little bit less judgment. Um, and so Hazel is Hazel is Hong Kong Chinese. She um, she comes to the UK to go to school, right, yeah. um, and then her her best friend and, and co um, co detective Daisy is. Um, is a very posh, you know, sort of uh, white English girl, but um, then uh, in my, book seven comes out as a lesbian, um, and and I just have a lot of different characters from different backgrounds, you know, different sexualities, different religions, and yeah. I I want to do that to kind of put make Agatha Christie an Agatha Christie style world where everybody more people would feel welcome than than do I think in in real Agatha Christie. Yeah, and and I think the way you do it is subtle enough that it doesn't feel like messaging it feels yeah. like a universe it feels like living yeah. in the world um and and they're just wonderful books and um yeah. it's been such a pleasure speaking with you about agatha the things we love and the things we don't love quite so yeah. much uh, robin where do you want to be found in the world and where can people I, find you if so i think it's unavoidable i have <laughs> no. um it's robin uh like the bird dash stevens uh with a v um robin dash stevens.co.uk yep. Um, I am on most social medias at Red Breasted Bird, as in a robin, Red Breasted Bird. Uh, I'm on Twitter as long as that lasts. I'm on um, <laughs> we'll see. Instagram. I'm on TikTok now. I'm wow. on no, it's all the all the all the kids are on TikTok now. <laughs> I'm all pretending to be now. I yeah no, so I I am a prolific social media user. And, Great. Um, so yeah, you can find me. And at the moment, I'm meant to be writing the sequel to Ministry of Unladylike Activity, Wonderful. which will um, either next year or the beginning of the year after, depending on how fast I write. So I shouldn't be on social media, but I probably will. Okay, fantastic. Well, all of that will be in the episode notes. So if you want to yeah. visit Robin's extensive social media and her website, we'll have that there for you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure. It's been 
Thank you to our producer, Kate Crischel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Our next book will be The Moving Finger. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Mm-hmm.